1: Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Performing Arts, a podcast from the New Books Network. My name is Andy Boyd. Today, I'm speaking with Karen Jaime about her book, The Queer New Yorican, Racialized Sexualities and Aesthetics in Los Aida. Karen, welcome to the program.
0: Thank you. I'm excited to be here.
1: Yeah, well, we're excited to have you. Um, I thought we would start today by having you uh, read a bit of your own poetry uh, to kind of set the scene and to give us a sense of kind of part of the aesthetic of the New Yorkian Poets Cafe. Um, would, you, would you mind reading part of one of your poems?
0: Sure, no problem. This poem is actually um, in the conclusion, um, and it's entitled Ghosts in the Walls, Ode to the New Rican. There are ghosts in the walls, their scorecards invisible, their applause muted. They have no CDs or chat books for sale, no watches to give you, no trophies for you to carry home, and no book deals for you to sign. There are ghosts in the walls who don't care about how much you scream, yell, or stomp your feet. They don't care whether or not you memorize it or are reading it from the page. Memorizing it doesn't make it poetry. It just makes it memorized. There are ghosts in the walls who make you forget that it's a Friday night in New York City and you've waited online for an hour and a half paid $7, now 20 and are now sitting on a dingy wood floor with people stepping on your feet, all because you heard that this, this is where poetry lives. There are ghosts in the walls who protect their own and let them know that fake poets don't prosper and that walls aren't just walls, just like this ain't just a cafe. It's not just another place where people read poetry. It's not just old brick and mortar and dilapidated tables, rickety chairs, and dim lighting they are ghosts in the walls whose lifespan extends beyond the visible. Angels who watch and guide us because this is their home, and they want to make sure that it's being taken care of. This isn't just another place where people get on the mic and spit. Fake poets beware. This, this is the New Yorican.
1: Great. Thank you so much. Yeah, I think that's a, a really great way to kind of frame our conversation. It, it brings up so many of the issues that you explore in the book. Um, I'm especially interested in the kind of this idea of kind of realness versus fakeness when it comes to poetry, which intersects with the ideas of, you know, authenticity versus commercialization, uh, a a lot in there to to get to, but uh, maybe we should take those topics one at a time. Um, Could you tell us what kind of inspired you to write this book?
0: Sure. So um, it's really interesting. So I started, well, it's interesting to me and hopefully it's interesting to the readers. Um, I started out writing poetry and performing spoken word as an undergrad at Cornell, because I was really angry. It was my first time um, being in a space that felt really alienating, that didn't necessarily feel welcoming. I was trying to figure out what home was at Cornell, a predominantly white institution that at that time was, you know, sort of dealing with a lot of racial and ethnic issues. And I mean, it continues to do so at that time, though, it was really sort of bubbling up. You know the student takeover of De Hall in 1993, leading to the founding of the Latino Living Center. So all of this was going on and I found that poetry and performance was my way of sort of articulating my discontent, it was my way of utilizing poetry as a form of consciousness raising, as a form of activism, of having my voice heard. Um, once I graduated, I, I took a class at Cornell and once I graduated, I made it my mission to visit the New Nuyorican Poets Cafe, and I did. And when I walked in there, I, it just felt like home. It felt like a place that I had read about that was now becoming a reality. Um, I felt like I belonged there as an artist whose work always sort of engaged with not just political issues, but issues of cultural affirmation, issues of queerness. So. That the New Eureka became my home, and I I started hosting the Friday Night Poetry Slam there in 2002. Um, after I started graduate school, and I realized that I could actually write about the work that I was already doing, like I could actually write a dissertation about the New Eureka Poets Cafe, and that was okay. And and th- and that's where I wanted to be, and that's where I wanted to perform. And I it, it was this light bulb went off, and I realized that I could. Do, do the thing that I wanted to do in graduate school, get a degree for it, and hopefully ultimately, you know, um, get a job uh, thinking about the New Yorican. At first, the book itself really did not necessarily engage with queerness, but really engaged with thinking about a New Yorican aesthetic that I saw coming up a lot when poets stepped onto the stage, right? There was this there was a particular group of poets who would step to the stage and perform work that wasn't just political and content. It wasn't necessarily just about, like, firm politics, but it was about sort of signaling towards the lineage and the history of the Recon Poets Cafe, right, as a space that emerges as a way for at that Latinx and outsider artists in the 1970s to have a place to perform. Right, that sort of contested these ideas of high art, low art, proper ways of writing, proper ways of performing, proper subject matter. Like, what are you supposed to write poetry about? Right? Are we just going to sit here? And Leaves of Grass is is not necessarily what we all want to write about. So it, um, you know, that. So the dissertation wasn't necessarily about queerness, and then I had a postdoc and a very good friend. Um, when I had a postdoc quote to graduate school with Sandra Ruiz was like, I think, you know, that what's missing there is is you thinking about queerness, right. And, and how does, and that connection right there, com, not just, it didn't necessarily change the project. It changed the framework around which I was analyzing the work of the artist and broaden the scope of who I was looking at. So it it really allowed me to get into the material in a very specific way. And, Document a legacy that hadn't been discussed before. the The concept of the foundational figures at the New York Poets Cafe as queer and as enacting a queering of New Yorkians, um, not just the cafe, but of the term and of performance practices, hadn't been done. It was always a very let's you know chart the history of the space, and this is kind of what they're doing. But I'm like queerness is central. Like queerness mm-hmm. is central to who these figures are.
1: Yeah, I I feel like there's a kind of you know um, just so story about that founding generation that it's a very kind of masculinist um, you know straight male space. Um, and I, I guess I'm curious in asking you sort of like to what extent is your project. Um kind of trying to push back against a reality of the New Yorkian being a masculinist space, and to what extent are you trying to say no, that's actually never been true. um does that question make sense?
0: Sure, it does. I mean, I think um I think it's framed as such. I think it operated as such, but I think that it was masculine like queer masculinity
1: mm mhm
0: right? Like it, it, we can definitely see, you know, the foundational figures playing into these tropes of like masculinity and, and but not entirely, right? Like in having conversations and being around someone like Miguel Algarín, uh, one of the, the foundational figures, and if not the foundational figure that people think about when they think of the New York and alongside Miguel Pinero, it was always, yes, there's a, there's, the masculinity is always Sort of um frame within like they're all dudes so obviously there's this like latin machismo that's that's enacted yeah we can think about it in in that way but there's also this queerness and this queer desire that's articulated within that that works to disrupt that and that constantly challenge that um but that wasn't documented because it doesn't necessarily i would argue it doesn't necessarily support or further you know the, the sort of dominant narratives about social justice and artistic movements, right? This isn't, um, this isn't unique to the New Nuyorican. If we think about the Black arts movement, it's like, yes, there are the men, and then you'll have like a poem here by Sonia Sanchez, and let's throw a little Audre Lorde over here, but it's always framed around Amiri Baraka and the men, right? And the New Nuyorican sort of follows in that vein, and we think about that also with the beat. And these are people that, you know, Miguel and the foundational figures were in conversation with, that were also there at the beginning of the cafe like Allen Ginsberg, like Amiri Br- they were there, right? So in that sense, it feels, and it looks very, you know, heterosexist masculinist, and that's the narrative that was written. And I think that there was a queering there, and that there was a queering, both in terms of queer desire, but also in the performance practices that emerged that really challenged the sort of straight, straight and straight, um, straight politics Right. Like a, a sort of radicalism that's, you know, invested in heterosexuality. Mm.
1: I'd like to talk a bit about the kind of framing of the book around this concept of New yorkian which is a very multifaceted word in, in your book. It, it refers both to. The New Yorican Poets Cafe, often referred to just as the New Yorican, but it's also a designation of a, of an ethnic group of, of you know, kind of New York-bred Puerto Ricans. Um, to what extent are those overlapping categories? To what extent is is it an aesthetic category, an, an ethnic category? Um, does it depend on the context of... Uh, yeah, I, I mean you, you write about you wrote a whole book about this question to a certain extent. So um I, I have a hard time, you know, formulating a clear question about it. But uh but yeah, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that.
0: Sure. No, I think I mean that makes a lot of sense. I think that when we think of I'm going to the New Yorkians, um I, it's referring to the space that always becomes like sort of the shorthand for the space, either the New Yorkian, and more recently thinking about it as neo I'm going to the Neo. Um I think, you know, it, it's difficult it, it's different in speaking than it is in writing because in writing then I can very clearly mark the distinction between New York and lowercase n as referring to the aesthetic practice that I'm arguing emerges from the cafe. Um, and, you know, New York weekends, I think re- refers would e- would be an easy way to identify sort of it's referring to the to people. Um, I think, you know, it always gets tricky. And I talk about this in the book when we think of like New Yorkian poets. Are we talking about ethnically New Yorkian poets? Are we talking about, you know, New Yorkian poets in the way that I'm thinking about New Yorkian lowercase in as an aesthetic? Um, I think that's, that's sort of where you have that issue. But when people say New Yorkian poets, nine times out of 10, they're speaking about poets that are affiliated in some way with the cafe. It's become really, it's become subsumed. Right. And I think part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to untether that and to really honor the history of, you know, people of Puerto Rican descent born and raised in New York. Mark a distinction between them and people that are affiliated with the cafe, but that don't share that particular history. Right. I think that that's a really important history to honor and to to mark a distinction, because then what ends up happening is that if New York uppercase N can then be applied to anybody who walks through the doors of the cafe and perform. Um, what are the peoples who fought really hard to reappropriate that term? Who, you know, have a particular political, cultural and ethnic legacy where, where, where that was at play. So I think for me, it's really important to mark that distinction. I, it's, it's challenging. I think it's contextual right? Like what are people saying in the sentence? Um, I also, I always ask for clarification because I, again, my investment is in sort of untangling all of that. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and the, the kind of classification of who counts as a New Yorican artist has been pretty capacious kind of through official publications associated with the cafe. Like I have the anthology of plays from the York Poets Cafe and, you know, there's Miguel Pinheiro in there, but there's also Ishmael Reed, who's, who's not of Puerto Rican descent. Um, so, you know, where does, I'm kind of interested in this, this feeling of wanting it to be a sort of wide open space. Um, and yet even kind of within the leadership of the cafe, there's a, there's dispute among. Well, can anyone call themselves New Yorker? Can anyone who's here call themselves New Yorker? Or, you know, how much kind of how do you take ownership of that term and that label? Is is it seems to be sort of still an open question, right?
0: Sure, I, it's an open question. I think it's always up for debate. I think that it's about community. It's it's really what um, I start off the book. I, I start. I mean, I start off the book with that. Debate itself, right? The conversation, well, the conversation, quote unquote, the debate between you know Bob Holman, who in the New York Times it you know makes the statement anyone can be New Yorker, like we're all New Yorkers, and you know Bev Pietri's response that that's bullshit, you know that's something that belongs to us and we'll share it, but you know it's it, it's not open to everyone. I think again, what I do with the lowercase New Yorker is open up a space for people who are not of Puerto Rican descent who maybe whose politics are in alignment with the founding of the space with the New Eurecan arts movement to sort of find a home within that without necessarily taking over the ethnic and political politics of new Euricacan uppercase n right? It's, yes, we can all be New Eurecan but we can't bo- we can't all be a newricacan right there's a spe- a specificity in saying. A, New Yorican versus New Yorican is a broad sort of signifier, which part of the problem with with sort of broadening it or part of the issue that I raised in terms of broadening the term to include everyone is that the, the question comes up, does it then just become a hollowed out signifier that's now applicable to everyone? If you perform at the cafe, then it includes you, even if your work does not necessarily align with the history and performance of the space like the, the performance history of the space and the cultural legacy of the space. Um, you know, I'm a historian at heart, so I'm I'm invested in these these modes of performance that challenge, you know, sort of traditional and rigid boundaries around performance, but I'm also deeply committed to cultural legacies, especially cultural legacies of a place like the New Yorican Poets Cafe, because it was an artistic movement that actually had a space attached to it, I think that's something that distinguishes it from something like the you know the beats where there was no beats cafe in downtown New York City, right like with the black arts movement, you had this move to establish theater and everything, but there wasn't a black arts poetry cafe or a black arts cafe there wasn't right so there's something very um specific where the New region kind of fills in this gap and then becomes a space where all of these politics are enacted. And I think that that's great. But I think we, we still need to sort of honor what the the term, the term has a heavy legacy.
1: Mm-hmm. And not everybody who even, you know, performs spoken word you feel has the right to kind of claim that legacy. Right.
0: Sure. No, because I, I think, um, I think sometimes, especially in this particular moment after poetry, sort of after the, the rise of poetry slam in the in the '90s, around '96, when it really started gaining a lot of traction through the work of sort of Salt Williams, the Paul Devlin documentary Slam Nation. Um, I think spoken word became a vehicle for people to do other things. Like I can, it, it's easy. It's easy to do in terms of all you need to do is write a poem and have someone open up a space for you to get on the microphone and you never know who's gonna be in the audience, especially at a place like the New York Poets Cafe. I mean, when I was hosting once, a poet brought Malcolm Jamal Warner who was begging me to do two poems in a night. You never know who's gonna show up. You never know who's gonna see you and perhaps offer you an opportunity to do something else. There was Russell Simmons deaf um deaf poetry jam on HBO and a lot of poets use their Friday night spot to sort of and and I'm not knocking that, right? But I think that with the increased visibility and commercialization, I think that the work oftentimes seeks to cater to a mainstream audience, right? That gig on HBO could result in you becoming an actor and getting on another show. So there's there are a lot of politics there. So it's not sort of like I just need to have my voice heard. It's okay, this is a way for me to get on not just the stage, but, you know, sort of access other, other performance opportunities. Yeah. There's something
1: always changes when people realize they can make money doing something, right?
0: I make a lot of money because I think before it was like, okay, I can sort of put my chapbook out there. And, you know, I'm coming from that generation where people are selling chapbooks and CDs out of their backpacks. Mm -hmm. But what happens when then that shifts? And like, I know, I know, you know, a poet who was doing hip hop and you know performed at the cafe and then performed on HBO and then all of a sudden did this movie like it just sort of it, it it happens like I'm not just making some dollars on a Friday night outside of the cafe now I'm getting major commercial opportunities yeah um
1: I I I I want to sort of um, broaden this conversation about the kind of mainstream commercial viability of the work that was uh, performed at the cafe. Ah, uh, to the, the larger conversation of the gentrification in the Lower East Side, which is another major topic of your book. Um, I could imagine somebody saying something like, "Well, Karen, the the commercialization of the poetry enabled the cafe to stay open when you know performance venues all across the Lower East Side, even legendary performance venues across the Lower East Side like CBGB and the Stone, are you know closed down." Um, what? How would you answer that kind of a a you know, pushback
0: well, I think that the cafe reflected the change in the neighborhood right It was this dialogic relationship, so sure, there was that, but there were still people that were performing work from outside the the neighborhood itself, right The thing is that originally the cafe was this place in a neighborhood that you had a lot of you had public housing, you had you know chat as the community space. And those were the people that were going to the cafe. Sure, you had some people traveling, but nobody really was trying to go to East Third Street between B and C, right? Like nobody's trying to climb over. As Reggie Kabiko, I think I included that quote in the book. He's like, it was. He shows up in like '92, '93 as an undergrad at NYU, and it's like it was tumbleweed and syringes, and no one's trying to necessarily, you know. And I don't want to sort of. I don't want to denigrate that. I don't want to in any way make it sort of like this ethnographic study of the space in that way. Um, but I don't think that it was a neighborhood where the NYU students were trying to rent apartments. Where, you know, the, I mean, NYU is a big, you know, is a big force taking over a lot of the buildings and sort of, you know, we had the vacating of the buildings due to the AIDS crisis and, you know, the, divestment and all of that. So I think, you know, the relationship between the cafe and the neighborhood is always one that's dialogic. I think that, sure, there is, you know, the ways that the cafe needed to, it didn't need to, it didn't necessarily need to adapt. The The performers came in and created work that spoke to the reality outside of the cafe. I think that my issue and what I always push back up against was um Letting that be the only type of work that was performed and produced there, where that became the face, right? Like I, if you're going to come in and perform a poem or create, um, or create a performance that you know is sort of reflective of gentrification and all of the sort of high-end moves that are occurring in the neighborhood, I under, I, I see that, I understand that. Um, you may or may not make money. Sure, you'll invite your friends and they'll come in, but. That can't be the that can't be the what takes over the space where the space now just becomes a commercial venue right I think it's that that conversation that sort of that tension between the gentrification and the commercialization and the people that are deeply committed to art that's challenging that I think that I think that that tension is what is is what enables the space to stay open it can't just be it can't just be the sort of gentrification heavy commercialization devoid of any sort of politics um type of performance that that's not going to keep the cafe open because that's not what the cafe was was sort of founded on.
1: Yeah, so you're kind of drawing a connection here between gentrification being a theme of the poetry and commercialization. You feel do you feel like that's kind of a ironically a commercially viable move is to write a play talking about how bad gentrification has gotten?
0: I mean, I don't, I, don't I, I think that creating a performance that's informed by how bad the gentrification is would be an interesting move and could be a really successful move. Um, I don't know if I want to sit through an entire play that's sort of like, bad, bad gent we all know it is, right? But I think that we can signal it. I'm remembering one instance on a Friday night, and this was in the early aughts when I was still hosting, and the building direct, that shared the wall with the cafe um, was being redone. And the architects met with our house manager to discuss sort of the layout when we did events, et cetera. So Carmen Pietri, the late Carmen Pietri, was Pedro Pietri's sister, informed them that we do, we have shows on Friday nights, on Mondays. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't, it's a poetry reading. I mean, it's not a party. But so don't put the bedrooms up front. And they literally put the bedrooms up front. So on a Friday night at like 11 o'clock, this woman comes out and yells at us. First of all, there was like anyone who was smoking or anyone who was outside was over to the front of the building. So they weren't even in front of her building. And they're like in front of the cars and no one is screaming or yelling. They're just natural conversation. You're on New York City street. And she was complaining about my two-year-old can't sleep. And I'm like, but it's a Friday night in New York City. And you're right. on the lower, on the lower side. side. <laughs> like I don't, I don't understand. like yeah. that never would have happened. Like well, mm-hmm. that, that for me is like peak gentrification. That like she is going to come out at eleven. It's eleven p.m. My child can't sleep, and why? Because the, bu- the building on the other side of her was a twenty-four hour security building. So those sort of neighborhood changes, you know, forces the cafe then to sort of get a wind guard to quiet things down, put a red rope. Like we could not be in front of that building. But for me, that's part of what makes the cafe the cafe, right? These sort of organic conversations outside and people walking by and, oh, what's going on? Oh, I, I, I'd like to go in. I want to see what's going on. And again, not the door is closed. It's a heavy steel door. People are having a cigarette, a conversation for less than 10 minutes because it was intermission. And I know because I stepped out and it was 10 minutes, but her complaint for me was, gentrification. So I remember when I went back up, I was like, now we're going to cheer really loud. Now right. we're going to cheer really loud to <laughs> these brick walls because she needs to hear us. And yeah. I need her to, like, this. now this is a matter of private. Now we need to be loud. Not mm-hmm. outside, but inside because they don't control what we do in this space. And that for me is a commentary on the gentrification that was impacting the neighborhood, the ways that we needed to then accommodate because this woman who just moved to New York City from somewhere was complaining about a noise level at 11 p.m. in the Lower East Side of New York City. That yeah. made no sense to me. Absolutely no sense to me.
1: And that's just very indicative of people moving to an area with no knowledge of kind of its cultural history and the associations people have with that area, And Right.
0: Sure, but also wanting to change that, right? Even if they do have an understanding, it's okay. Well, I'm paying my, I'm paying a lot of money for this, and I'd like for it to be a certain way. And you know, we the the Near the Near didn't the, the cafe didn't have an issue on the other side of the wall because that was a rehearsal space of Blue Man Group. So they were fine, like they were fine. They, they shared, you know, we shared the alley with them. There wasn't an issue, but I think. For her, it was like, well, I paid all this money to move in here, so I don't really care about what's going on over. I need I need this neighborhood to start accommodating my particular needs, and there there's public housing directly across the street from you. People that have lived there for generations. Like, are you going to shush them when they're sitting outside on, you know, outside the front door? It's you know, I think that's that that was. A big part of the frustration for me, and really indicative of, you know, this sort of the, enc- the encroachment presented by gentrification.
1: Mm-hmm. I'd love to talk about some of the specific kind of case studies in your book. You have a chapter about Miguel Pinero, who's one of the founders of the cafe and a, a poet and playwright and an actor. Um, what did you want to emphasize about his work that you felt hadn't been adequately recognized in previous studies?
0: Sure. I think that Miguel Pinedo was always framed as bisexual. He had relationships with men, with women, um, but there wasn't an attention paid to that. And there wasn't an attention paid to how that informed his writing and his performance. It was It, it wasn't necessarily focused on in the ways that he employed a particular aesthetic that seems to be a precursor to some of the slam poetics that emerged later at the cafe, the imprint that he left behind that I argue sort of informs what is what we think of as sort of, oh, that's how they perform poetry at the Nicarican. Um Like they're, you know, in focusing on being, you know, I, I highlight, you know, Lower East Side poem as the, the sort of poetic Living will, which makes sense, um, but I also sort of pay attention to his relationship with, you know, Martin Wong, and how, and how that informs his work, right? And and that he's really he's sort of articulating a queerness that is always generally left out of the conversation, always kind of muttered like, yeah, no, he he had relationships with men too. I mean, he was bisexual, but. Kind of quietly, um, and it isn't a and it isn't a, sort of an identified, That's not necessarily how he would have identified, it. Like There was this article in the New York Times after he passed, where the writers like he. That's not a term he would have used to describe himself. He was just fluid, you know. So I mean, I think I think that for me was was something I felt needed to be documented. Like if I was writing a book about queerness at the cafe really needed to engage with that in terms of Pinheiro, because he was also, um, you know, a challenging figure, right? There, there, you know, his desire was, I i, I want to use the term like capacious, <laughs> to be kind, uh, you know, it was, you know, there, there are stories of him, you know, coming on to to young men that were younger and not just, but significantly younger. And, and, you know, how that, you know, so there, there, there was a lot there to unpack with Vigneto. Um, one of the other
1: great intersections of queerness and the, the New yorkian was the glam slam, um, which I had never heard of before your book, but it's just an incredible, you know, on, could only happen in New York kind of moment. Um, could you describe what the glam slam was?
0: Sure. So the Glen Slam started out in 1998 um, by queer poet, queer icon, Emmanuel Xavier, um, who had a relationship and, and, you know, his his personal history with the houseball community in New York, right? Um, with Willie Ninja and Carmen Extravaganza and, you know, his, his, um, homelessness when he was young, because he was kicked out uh, after he was, uh, found to be queer, and he was working at a different light bookstore and had this, um, oh, rhymes, I think it was rhymes and rhythms, uh, sort of poetry event that he hosted. And he ultimately managed to bring together the house ball community and the poetry slam community by devising um poetry balls, right? So similar categories to house balls right? Best Love Poem and Fire Engine Red. So as a poet, you had to walk that category the way you would at a ball. And when you got to the stage, then you'd have to recite your poetry. So it brought these two communities together in a really interesting way. It really, it was the event at the cafe that centered queerness, that didn't just sort of allude to it, but the New Ereca Poets Cafe during the Glantham was a queer space. Right, The like no lot, not outliers, not a little pocket, but the whole space itself. And you had the house ball community show up, different houses show up, along with people that were invested in poetry slam. You had categories, you had um, the the ball at the end, the winning the major category. Um, the judges on like a poetry slam were judges that had a particular standing in both the House community and the literary community. Eileen Miles community.
1: is one of the judges, right?
0: Yes, Eileen <laughs> Miles just, I love that detail.
1: It's like, of course, who else, you know?
0: Right, and you have to, and, and she's close to Emmanuel, and that's the thing. Like, you had Eileen Miles sitting next to Willie Ninja, who's sitting next to Michael Musto of the Village Voice at that time, uh, next to Hector Straganza, the late great Hector Extravaganza, um, who was, you know, later, prior to his death, was a consultant, um, one of the key figures in Pose. So you had all of these figures, right? Like downtown New York City legends judging poems. Like I won the Glam Slam, I think it was in 2002, and like Willie Ninja gave me my trophy. And for me, as someone who had watched Paris is Burning, who knew, you know, had come into my queerness and had, you know, just watched tons of footage and was, you know, sort of blown away. I was like, I actually got a trophy from Willie Ninja. Like this is legendary for me. Um congratulations,
1: this, by the way. I know I'm a bit late, but uh you know. <laughs> thank
0: you. That's like twenty years now it's twenty years ago. Um yeah, it was it was an incredible event because you got to see these two communities come together. You got to see, you know, the sort of the the Poetry and the, the what poetry slam could be in a different way. And it was really important for me to highlight that connection because for me that was a way that queerness intersected with poetry slam, intersected with the cafe in a really tangible way. Like when I walked into a glam slam at the New Eurekan, it was an experience I had never had. And I felt and I that I felt at home at the cafe. But mm-hmm. in that moment I found home. Mm. Right. I found
1: home there. Uh, Another topic you cover in your book is the influence of hip hop on the spoken word scene. And there's sort of shallow versions of this, like where somebody reads a poem and basically what they're just doing is rapping, but there's not a beat. Uh, And then there's kind of more interesting, sophisticated ways to mix these two cultures. And you talk specifically about uh, Reggie Kabiko and his piece, Filipino Shuffle. Um, How? how do you know he's somebody who doesn't sound like he's rapping um doesn't it, it isn't even sort of obviously using what we think of as a spoken word poetry aesthetic necessarily and yet you argue that his work is still deeply kind of informed by the aesthetics and politics of hip-hop could you kind of talk about what that influence is
0: sure I, I, yeah i mean i think you know someone like reggie a queer filipino who's type of whose mode of performance is very much, can be more like stand-up comedy. There's a lot of humor um, along with musical theater. Reggie does like a good tune. Um, I think that, that's how you, it, his work is generally framed and you can think, you can sort of read it that way. I think that he utilizes hip hop aesthetics and specific those of sort of sampling, right? We think of the four elements of hip hop. He definitely uses sampling throughout his hip hop theater show or his play that I'm framing as hip-hop theater, Filipino Shuffle, in the ways in which he samples and remakes the classic Robert Townsend film um, uh, as Filipino Shuffle, right? So he uses some of the same tropes. Um, he uses scratching in the same way that a DJ would in terms of his delivery in certain scenes, but he also relies on particular spoken word um, Aesthetics and types of performance. The, the, specifically, I mentioned in the book that uh, sort of quote unquote calling someone out or calling someone's attention um, to something that they're doing that is problematic. Like he writes um, love letters to different celebrities that are both humorous but pointed critiques, such as the one he writes to Tia Carrera and how she allowed her body to be objectified. Um, and he refers to it some. A scene in Lord of the Rings. I've never seen Lord of the Rings, but there's apparently a scene in Lord of the Rings. They're like feasting on something, and he's saying that, you know, she's allowing her body to be feasted on by sort of white mainstream culture. So, you know, he's sort of a, and and that's also similar in. That's something also drawing from hip hop, right? This sort of I'm going to call you out. Um, I mean, now we get a lot of it in Twitter, but just sort of back in the days, the rap battles is you know, the, the back and forth of it. Um, He he employs these particular techniques in his work in a way that for me was drawing from hip hop and, and as part of the aesthetics necessary for the performance of his work. Yeah, could
1: you, I, I mean, I feel like people might be surprised if they're not familiar with this material to find out that there was something that could be called hip hop theater before like in the Heights or whatever. So, oh my God, um, yes. Could you talk a bit about kind of, you know, not just Reggie's work, but I mean, there's there's really a whole, you know, a- aesthetic continuum coming out of the cafe that I feel like rarely gets acknowledged these days, uh, especially in kind of conversations around Lin-Manuel Miranda, who, you know, I don't want to talk about to, to great length, but I think it's worth saying he did not invent this idea that you could mix hip hop no, theater. No, he did not. He
0: did not at all. I mean, I think of the first international hip hop theater festival, and I cannot... I. It's like late 90s at, you know, when he was still an undergrad at Wesleyan, because I believe he graduated in 97. Um, You know, before Lee Manuel created In the Heights, there there was a whole cadre of people creating work, right? And I think, you know, we we look at the Hip Hop Theater Festival in downtown New York City. A lot of it happened at, I want to say, PS122. I remember seeing Sarah Jones. Uh, The great Sarah Jones on stage when she wrote and performed Surface Transit. Um, I mean, she's sort of iconic now and thinking about, you know, the hip hop theater festival. And I always have a hard time thinking of In the Heights as hip hop theater. I really do and it's not just because it's mainstream. I do think that Lee Manuel employs particular aesthetics and he uses rapping, but I think that there's a bit more to hip hop theater than just I'm going to include rapping and brown bodies on stage for it, for it to be hip hop theater. I I can see sure if we want to come up with a definition for hip hop theater, he definitely falls in line with that, but I think that that's not the hip hop theater that I was introduced to that wasn't necessarily the type of work that I saw staged. Um, so, I, I mean, I, I won't even get into that, but there's there's a legacy of hip-hop theater that, that predates him, that includes other performers, other histories, right, that includes Danny Hawk has a great piece um, in thinking about hip-hop theater. And Danny Hawk was definitely one of the initial figures and one of the sort of foundational figures in terms of hip-hop theater, where he's like, it's more than just theater with a hip-hop beat, right? There's the complexity, a pushback against sort of dominant norms and tropes of performance of writing that I think connects it to, you know, a lot of the, not a lot of, but some of the initial shows, like Sarah Jones, for example, were drawn from a poem. Like, how do I make this poem into a solo performance show? And sort of how do you branch that out? How do you create different characters around this right a lot of the hip hop theater that I was introduced to and that I initially saw was solo performance was a different type of uh, a different type of theater not that you know solo performance is a new form of theater, but a different type of theater that included um, political content that included performance on stage that included an engagement with spoken word and slam poetry um, that I don't, that I don't see in something like in the Heights.
1: Mm-hmm. And when you think about it that way, as, as hip hop theater being in conversation with poetry and kind of theater coming out of poetry, you could even see something like for colored girls as being a piece of hip hop theater or I mean, proto hip hop theater or something like that.
0: Sure. And I, I mean, I discussed a bit, the relationship between Tazaki Shange um, for colored girls. And, and again, and Tazaki was one of the, is, is listed on the website and was a foundational poet at the New York Poet Cafe. And one of the early readings of For Colored Girls was at the cafe. And I think, you know, that's that's sort of a precursor, right? That's a precursor to this moment that later emerges. Um, uh, a, I mean, hers was very much a choreo poem, but it's definitely a precursor and that type of aesthetic that is drawn from. And then there's an investment in the literary in that, right? The, the literary and conversation with the performance and conversation with theater. That's something that I think sort of connects. That that Reggie is really doing well.
1: Mm-hmm. I'd love to kind of return to what we kind of started with, which is kind of your own involvement in this scene. And you you commented, you know, that some of this stuff is now twenty years ago. And I, I'm just wondering, what is it like? revisiting footage of yourself from the early 2000s, you know, now in the context of writing an academic book about the subject?
0: Um, I look younger. Um, (laughs) I look a bit more carefree, carefree,
1: Uh but
0: it's really interesting. It's a particular, not just my personal history, but it's a particular history of the cafe that I am excited. I was excited to revisit I'm always excited to continue documenting archive and thinking about and with. Like, I think that was a really special moment in time before we had, like, you had to catch it. It was before, if you weren't there, you couldn't record it on your phone. You couldn't catch a clip of it on YouTube. You, it was very much about being there and being present. And I know that, you know, yeah, some things are better. Now you can disseminate the work to a broader audience. But I think that there was al- there was also something really magical about rushing to catch that, that I really enjoy revisiting right now, the sort of immediacy of that, the sort of seeing of that. It's something that, you know, I'm gonna continue working on. So this 2022, um, I'm gonna I'm actually gonna be a fellow at the hemisphere again, a fellow at the hemispheric institute. Of performance and politics at NYU, and I curated the New York Poets Cafe Founders Archive there. So we'll be launching it this semester. You know, we'll do a book launch and an inauguration of the site so that I will not be the only person that will be able to access that old footage, but, you know, we can all sit there and watch on our computers because it's an open access platform footage of the New Recon Poets Cafe in 1976, for example. So you'll see not only someone like Miguel Pinero, but if we think of actor Luis Guzman, that was his first time stepping on stage. Like that's where he, you know, that's where he started. At the at the old New Yorican Poets Cafe, getting up, doing some poetry as a 21-year-old kid with like a butterfly collar. So that's, that type of stuff is exciting for me. See, sure, I'm a part of it. In in the '90s, and seeing myself is always exciting, but not seeing myself at the point of seeing myself, but seeing myself as part of this incredible cultural legacy and moment, as you know, someone who was who always loved the space, but who can now continue to make the space visible and challenge these narratives and challenge. That's my way of challenging the the sort of gentrification and the gentrification art. It doesn't have to be this way. It was not always this way. And we don't have to allow it to be this way. Like if you are going to step into the space, then your work needs to do something. Your work needs to heed the mandate of Miguel Algarin that the poetry needs to do something. Don't just get up and, and recite a poem, but have it matter. Right? And I think in this moment we need we continue to need that.
1: As a last question, I wonder are you, do you feel hopeful about the future of the New Yorican Poets Cafe kind of going into the the 2020s?
0: I do. I feel really hopeful about the cafe. Um, you know, they received a grant a couple of years ago to broaden up the entrance, to sort of redo some of the upper floors. Uh, I'm really excited about the new members on their e-board. Right? I think that they're incredible additions. I'm thinking of someone like Caridad de la Luz, La Bruja was an incredible, um, was an incredible poet, actress, musician. You know, Ishmael Reed. Like they, they're there's a new energy that I'm really excited about in terms of the cafe and people who I know are committed to ensuring that not just in preserving the legacy of the cafe, but but continuing to add to it.
1: Well. Karen Jaime, thanks so much for being on New Books and Performing Arts to talk about your wonderful book, The Queer New Yorican. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you.
0: Thank you so much. This was wonderful.